Ahoy, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of the mission to learn about all the secrets that are lurking around the universe. This week, we'll learn about a snake that steals its poison. Also, I've got a simple solution to help climate change. And we'll have your questions on stitches, shocks and seas. That's coming up. First, let's get a lesson from the smartest school outside of the solar system. This is Deep Space High. Deep Space High. Space for all. Alright, alright. Settle down. Let's get started. Hang on. Where's Sam? <sighs> Sorry I'm late. It was my turn to clean the pets out, and the space ferrets only went and escaped from their cage. It took me ages to round them all up. <laughs> Rounding up ferrets? I know the feeling. Okay, we've been looking at the wide range of space jobs you lot could do when you leave school, and finding out that whatever you like, there could be a career in space for you. So, who's next? Dax, do you want to tell us what your favourite lesson is? I'm the class representative on the Deep Space High School Council. It's a really cool thing, although I'm not sure it sets me up for a career in the stars. And what is it that you like about being on the school council? We come up with ideas to make the school the best in the solar system and make sure everyone's happy and feel like they're part of things and help to solve problems too. What you're describing sounds a lot like citizenship. People working together to make positive differences to the society in which they live. That could be a society as small as a school or as gigantic as a galaxy. And it's something that's been part of space exploration since the very early days. Let me demonstrate. Computer Sim, take us to London, January the 27th, 1967. You're witnessing history in the making. The United Kingdom, USA and Russia have just signed a treaty. It's called the Outer Space Treaty. And this incredible agreement states that the exploration and use of outer space shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all nations. It means that, for example, no one country can own a planet. Not even if they put a flag on it? Not even then. They also agreed that celestial bodies such as the moon must only be used for peaceful purposes. Today... Over a hundred countries have now signed the treaty, and working together hasn't stopped there. Computer, Baikonur Cosmodrome, November the 20th, 1998, if you please. Three, two, one, we have it all. We're at the launch of the Russian rocket Zarya. It's carrying the first piece of what will be the International Space Station into orbit. The space station is as much a human achievement as it is a technological one. And it was only possible because different countries worked together. By sharing knowledge and work, the United States, Russia, Japan and Canada, along with the European Space Agency, were able to achieve more together than they could do on their own. OK, end sim. People who can organise others to work together, to share knowledge and to find new and better ways to do things are absolutely vital to space exploration. And with space tourism on the horizon, there'll be even more participants and it'll be more vital than ever to ensure as many people as possible can participate and that things are safe and fair for all. Sounds pretty cool. So, Sam, 
Might you like to use citizenship skills to help organise the future of space exploration? I couldn't even organise the space ferrets back into their cages. Not sure it's the career for me. <laughs> uh, we'll find something yet. We're out of time now, but let's keep thinking about your favourite lessons and interests, and you'll find space really is for all of us, including you, Sam. All right, class dismissed. Quietly now. Sometimes I think space ferrets might be less trouble than you lot. Deep Space High, space for all. With support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash space. Now, you know, if you've got a question, you can always leave it for us and I will do all the digging for you. I'll turn into a science superhero trying to find the answer. All you need to do, leave it as a review on Apple Podcasts. Find the Fun Kids Science Weekly. There's a little comment box. Drop it there and I'll see it and I'll say hello. Uh, Gabrielle has done that. She is 11 years old. She's from Ireland. She wants to know what happens when you get a stitch. Now, we don't really know. Not definitely. There's a few ideas. You know what a stitch is, though? It's when you're running about and you get that that kind of jarring, stabbing pain in your side. Now, there are two ideas that scientists have. One is that the muscle that's between your stomach and your lungs, it keeps the two of them apart, it's called the diaphragm, that it gets achy. It gets achy and a bit weak because all the blood that normally goes there is going to your arms and your legs because you're running all over the place. So that's one idea. The other is that your belly is finding it hard to break down and digest food and drink because you're not letting it rest while you exercise. So I can't absolutely answer that one for you, Gabrielle, but there's a couple, a couple of ideas for you. Uh, This one is from Ella, who is in Ireland. She's just turned 11. Happy birthday, Ella. Uh, She says, what happens when electricity shocks you? Well, electricity is an energy. It's made of electrons that flow and they're always flowing. They're always traveling. Now, they normally go in a big cycle that finishes at the Earth. Think what happens when you when you turn on your telly. The energy, it comes from the earth, through your plug, along the cables, into the TV, goes in a big circuit around the telly, back through the cable, and then down into the earth. Now, when you get in the way of that cycle, or you touch a bit of metal that's getting in the way, the electrons think it's quicker to go through you to get back home to the earth than carry on their journey. So it takes a quick little detour through you. And it hurts. The reason it hurts is because electricity has a huge amount of energy in there and it surges through you and it's extremely painful. That's why you need to be careful. And that's what happens when electricity shocks you. Ella, thanks for the question. Lastly, this is from Oscar, who is seven years old, who wants to know, why is the ocean blue? Now, we know that light is made of all colours of the spectrum. We've spoken about this before. Think of all the colours. Pretty much they're all in one single beam of white light. Now, the ocean is blue because water, the the particles in water, absorb the red part of the light spectrum. So all of the reddy colours, they're gone, which just leaves the blue one left. It reflects them back, which is why the ocean looks blue. If you've got a science question that you want answered on this show next week, you need to leave it as a review for me over on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, there are some things that you see online that stop you in your tracks. They drop your jaw to the floor and you have to find out more. And this is one of them today. We are headed to Tasmania, the other side of the world from where I am right now, to talk about the Pooseum. 
Uh, we have got Karen on the line. She's from the Puseum over in Tasmania. She's going to tell us those more. Karen, thanks for joining us. Hi, Dan. How are you? I am very, very well. Thank you so much for being there. You're, you're half the world away, so I really appreciate it. <laughs> now, yeah. um, like when I, I just said, I mean, when I saw... Uh, a, a whole museum dedicated to poo. I just, you've got, I've got to find out more. How did you come to, to, to start this place? So when I moved to Tasmania a few years ago, I was brainstorming ideas for a new project when I read a fascinating fact about skipper caterpillar poo. And this is when I decided I had to open a poo museum. I've always been interested in science, of course, and it just looked like the perfect project for me. Now, I know that in your museum, you can learn loads about different types of poo. But I guess I guess what's the point of it? When, when you saw this poo and you thought we need to start the museum, what, what can you actually learn from poo and all the poos that you've got where you are? Yeah, a lot. Uh, people don't understand when they come inside the museum how much information there's actually about animal poo. So animal poo uh, provides us with a lot of information about the animal that dropped it, so in case you see one outside. The advantage of analysing the poo instead of the blood of animals is that it can be done without touching an animal. So the animal doesn't even have to be present. Taking blood is very stressful for an animal, but examining the poo is not. The easiest way to find out whether the droppings are from a carnivore or a herbivore, uh, so a meat eater or a plant eater, is simply to pull it apart with two sticks and look inside. The poo of carnivores often contains undigested parts of the prey, such as hair, uh, bits of bones, teeth, or beaks in case the carnivore ate a bird. If a carnivore chews down bones of the prey, the calcium in the bones will make the carnivore poo partly or entirely white. Although even the poo of herbivores can become white and brittle in summer simply because of the sun, of course. The droppings of herbivores contain undigested plant fiber, sometimes quite a lot. For example, up to half of what's in elephant dung is actually not digested. The poo of insectivores, so which are animals that eat mainly insects, such as echidnas in Australia, will contain undigested bits of insects. And the poo of frugivores, so frugivores are animals that eat mainly fruit, usually contains uh, lots of seeds. Some things in animal poo are invisible, but can be found through testing, such as, as I mentioned before, DNA and hormones. Some of the DNA found in poo will be the DNA of the animal that dropped the poo. But it could also be the DNA of what the animal has eaten. For example, if a fox eats a mouse, the fox poo might contain fox and mouse DNA. The DNA, however, could even stem from what the prey has eaten. So if a mouse eats some insects and then the mouse gets eaten by a fox, the poo of the fox might contain fox, mouse and insect DNA. So it's not so straightforward. To make matters even more complicated, the DNA found in the poo might be completely unrelated to the animal and simply be from contamination from when the poo fell to the ground. Analyzing the poo of wildlife is uh, very useful when studying endangered species. Uh, diseases can have a devastating impact on wildlife, causing entire populations to either decline temporarily or even disappear for good. Endangered animals can be tracked and monitored by collecting and examining their poo. For example, in 2014, Volunteers collected thousands of animal droppings in Tasmania 
to gather information about the distribution and diet uh, of native animals such as the Tasmanian devil, wombats and eastern quolls. I tell you what, I tell you what an answer. What, like a, a simple question, as in like a quick question. What can you learn from poo? You will never hear a more comprehensive, detailed description of poo in your life. Karen, that was fantastic. Now, I, I think there are some scientists out there who study some poos, some animal droppings. I doubt there's many people who know quite as many different animal ones as you do. What have you noticed? How are different animal poos different from each other? Just on, on, the, on, the, on the face of things. Yeah. So scats, and this is, of course, the proper name for animal poo, come in many different sizes. For example, the poo of a sea urchin is approximately the size of a grain of salt. So really tiny, tiny. I know this because we display some sea urchin poo at our museum. Elephants, on the other hand, do massive poos. Every time they defecate, they poo, their poo weighs about 15 kilograms, and they poo up to 10 times a day, which means large elephants could poo up to 150 kilos a day, which is the weight of two adults when you think about it. Usually, the larger an animal, the larger its poo, but this is not always true. For example, deer produce relatively small droppings compared to their body size as do camels and giraffes. Sloths, so these cute animals that hang upside down in trees and live in Central and South America, they can poo up to a third of their body weight in a single bowel movement. So once a week, they slowly, slowly climb down to the ground where they stand up, hold onto the tree, then they do what is called the poo dance, and then they do a massive poo. <laughs> so scats come also in lots of different shapes which too helps identify them. Some poos are longish, what we call cylindrical, like when it's from a dog or longish and curled or twisted. Some are longish with one pointy end, like rat droppings. Uh, others have two pointy ends, like from rock wallabies. Koala poo, for example, is oval-shaped, and rabbits, they produce little round pellets. Cow pets, of course, they are large, like large flat cakes. But wombats are the only animals in the world that produce cube-shaped poo. And many, many people are very excited about this. Animal poo also comes in a wide range of colors, of course. Many animals produce brown poo, but this can range from yellowish-brown to blackish-brown, depending on what the animals have eaten. Some feces have a green tinge, for example, the poo of gorillas or some geese. Poo can be partially or entirely white, as I mentioned before, if it's from a carnivore that has eaten bones. But, you know, eating a lot of carrots would turn poo orangey, beetroot reddish, blueberries purplish. Um, yes, so the color can really change. Droppings that contain dark and white parts might be from a bird or a reptile. In this case, only the dark part is the bird, while the white part is what's called uric acid. Birds and reptiles, they don't urinate the same way as humans or dogs do. Their kidneys excrete uric acid, and because it's an acid, it's damaging to surfaces like buildings, car paint, and solar panels, that the frequency of bowel movements varies widely in the animal world. While it is normal for humans to have uh, bowel movements from three times a day to three times a week, some birds actually poo up to 50 times a day. And on the other hand, some snakes, such as uh, the gibboon viper in Africa, they can go for an entire year without pooing. 
And when bears hibernate in winter, they don't eat, they don't drink, urinate or defecate for around six months. Their body temperature decreases, their breathing slows down, and their metabolic rate drops, which means all the chemical processes in their body slow down, and a kind of plug forms inside the bear's colon, a dry and hard mass consisting of dead intestinal cells, hair, and bits of plant material from their bedding, even just before and during hibernation. And when bears wake up in spring, they go outside, they check this plug near the entrance of their den, and then simply go back to normal. That's quite amazing when you think about it. Whoa. Oh, Karen, so many different types of poo. Um Listen, just how do you decide on new poos for the museum? How do you come across ones that you might want to bring in? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I've collected the droppings of many Australian native animals myself. Um, what I do is I dry them in a food dehydrate and uh, because dried feces have a very boring, faded look, I soak them in a mix of acetone and some dissolved resin beads, which not only preserves the scats but also gives them a bit of their shine back. At the museum, I also display, of course, the poo of animals that live outside of Australia. But it's really not easy to get them into the country. The biosecurity laws are very strict in Australia, and it's always a long bureaucratic process to get permission to import animal poo from overseas. When I contact people in other countries to ask whether they can send me the poo of their native animals, I always leave it up to them what they can collect for me. For example... John Ryder from the Woodcraft School in West Sussex, uh, Sussex in England collected some droppings for me, including the scats of various deer, foxes, badgers, otters, polecats, uh, hedgehogs and bats. But it took several months to actually get them into Australia because I needed an import permit first for Australia and then a second one also to bring it into Tasmania. So it's really not easy. Uh, now, just just some some quick fire questions. I think Karen, um, you've you've been around so many different poos. We've talked about them going in the fruit dehydrator. What, in your opinion, is the nicest smelling poo and the most disgusting smelling poo? <laughs> People always think that all poo smells gross, but that's actually not true. So the poo of many herbivores smells like grass or hay or some other plant material, not too bad at all. But the poo of carnivores often has a very strong and unpleasant smell caused by bacteria. Animals that eat fish like penguins and seals have very smelly poos. The smelliest poos I, uh, I have at the museum are the lion poo and the poo of a spotted quoll, which is also a carnivore. I couldn't let them dry in my garage. I really had to put them outside in the garden. It was just too much for me. <laughs> so we've we done, we done worse. We've done like touching nicest. What about the strangest? We, we, you spoke about the wombat cube-shaped poo earlier. You've got the bears when they hibernate and they have this grass and hay-filled plug. Uh, what's the strangest animal poo that you've found? So for me, personally, there is no such thing as a strange poo that just Simply all different. But yeah, many think that wombat poo is special because it's cube-shaped. And scientists, um, they're still not exactly sure why, but research has shown that the elasticity of the intestinal walls is not the same everywhere, and this might contribute to the poo coming out in the shape of cubes. But what's funny, though, is that some animals look like poo. 
For example, the larvae of swallowtail butterflies are black and white and curl up their bodies to mimic bird droppings to avoid being eaten by birds. Birds have uh, very good eyesight, hunting visually, but they can easily be tricked. And then there are the bird dropping spiders, which are found throughout eastern and southern Australia with a white and black body and their legs folded in. They are real masters of camouflage. By looking like unappetizing bird droppings, they are able to evade predators like birds and wasps. During the day, they sit motionless uh, on a leaf and they only become active at night. Now, I know that the last year has been very tough for people who run uh, museums. And I know over in Australia, you've been kind of in, kind of out of lockdown. Um, How have you found it? And also, if, you know, someone listening is over in Australia, if they're on holiday in Tasmania, um, how can they find the Puseum? Just tell us about what you've actually got going on on site. So the Puseum is, as you said, in Tasmania. Um, and it's a little historic uh, village called Richmond. So most people actually don't expect a Poo Museum in a historic village, but here you go. Um, uh, when people come to the museum, most people, I have to admit, they really have no idea what to expect. Some expect toilet humor, but it's a proper science museum uh, with a you know a lot of information to go through, a lot to read, a lot to watch. Something like forty videos. I have a screen with over thirty videos of pooing animals, and I call this the poo tube. Um, and then they're interactive uh, displays, and then, you know, every time people have questions, I'm more than happy to provide additional information. And usually people stay anything between uh, one and a half hours, but I even had people staying three hours, which probably not even I would do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, an educational experience. Amazing. I mean, well, j- simply for the poo tube, got to get yourself down there. Listen, I know uh, if you are listening in Australia, if you've never been down to Tasmania, if you're going on holiday at some point in the next year or so, I think you've got to get yourself down to the Puseum. The website to find out more, by the way, puseum.com.au. Uh, and there are loads and loads of poo facts there. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for telling us all about it. Thanks, Dan. It was a pleasure talking to you. Now, this week's Dangerous Dan is a toxic snake. We've had many on the show before, but this one is special. It's special because it's a thief, because it steals its own poison and it knows about it. You'll find the tiger keelback. It's a snake in Japan, in Asia. It's green, like a, like a lime green with black and orange crosses and spots all down its back. It's got a white belly and it's not that big. It's about a metre, maybe even less which means it's great prey for a swooping eagle. But they need to be prepared. Because the thing is, this snake, the tiger keelback, it has a brilliant defence mechanism. It eats toxic toads. It eats these toxic toads and it steals their poison. It steals their toxicity. It stores their toxins in the back of its neck. And then if the snake gets bitten, it arches itself, it lifts its neck high into the sky and it sprays the venomous poison that it has stolen straight at the predator, forcing them to flee. It hurts them, it burns, they fly away, leaving the Japanese tiger keelback to go searching for more toads to defend themselves with. I'm James Stewart and in Saving Planet Earth, I'm going to be joined by some of the world's top scientists to introduce you to some of the weird and wonderful ideas being trialled to try and save our planet. 
led, of course, by your questions. Hi, James. I know that climate change is affecting our oceans. Is there anything that's being done to look after it? And one of the solutions involves dolphin poo. <laughs> this is Saving Planet Earth. Available wherever you get your podcasts. We're travelling back through time now to the Age of the Dinosaurs. Age of the Dinosaur with Dinosaur Action Magazine, the number one mag for dino fans. Imagine going back in time, not 100 years or 1,000 years, but millions of years. To the Age of the Dinosaur. 45 million years ago, the Jurassic period ended and the Cretaceous began. More dinosaurs lived during the Cretaceous period than at any other. In fact, the world offered a wider variety of environments and species than before. Uh oh, we're on the move again. Hold on tight. Whilst the two main continents, Laurasia and Gondwana, had been slowly moving apart for millennia, during the Cretaceous period, they began to break up to form the continents we know today. Oceans still covered most of the planet, and many low-lying areas were underwater. At this time, you wouldn't have been able to travel from one side of America to the other without a boat. There was a shallow ocean in the middle. As the land broke apart, dinosaur species became separated from one another and had to adapt to new and different environments, from wet, cold and rainy to hot and dry. There were still leafy forests where huge plant-eaters like Mutaburosaurus would graze. Mutaburosaurus, which was 8 metres long, lived in what is now Australia and ate plants like cycads and ferns. And because the range of plant life increased substantially during the Cretaceous period, there was more to be eaten, including the first plants with flowers. Oh, it's really hot here. Other parts of the world were much drier, like the deserts today. Dinosaur fossils found in the Gobi Desert in East Asia show animals in the deserts then, just like now, had to be tough to survive. Like the fierce predator, Velociraptor. There's a pack of them. Quick, let's hide. Velociraptors were agile dinosaurs, about the same height as a man. They ran on their back legs and had sharp teeth for tearing their prey. It's believed that they hunted in packs and had a feathery coat. They may have hunted Protoceratops, a tough quadruped. That means four-legged animal, also found in the Asian continent. He was an early relative of famous horned dinosaurs like Triceratops, but much smaller. Less than two meters long, with a bony frill on the back of his skull, probably for display, and a very tough skin that would have been difficult to penetrate. Unlike his later relatives, Protoceratops lacked horns. To help him eat, he had a sharp beak-like mouth, rather like a parrot's for slicing through the driest and hardest vegetation. Paleontology, pick. To help make sense of all the different types of dinosaurs, paleontologists classify each species. Classifying means sorting them into groups on the basis of their similarities, such as type of skeleton or behavior. 
it's even possible to work out the dinosaur family trees by classification. Age of the Dinosaur with Dinosaur Action Magazine, the number one mag for dino fans. Let's have this week's Science in the News. North America experienced its warmest June month on record and it's only getting hotter. It's the fourth hottest June ever across the planet. Experts say that this terrifying rise in extreme temperature is a sign that there is a climate crisis that we need to pay attention to. Also, the population of a rare antelope has more than doubled in the last year. The Saiga which is an antelope from Kazakhstan. It was on the brink of being extinct. But following some smart conservation, numbers have risen from 300,000 to over 800,000 in just a couple of years. And finally, experts say planting trees across Europe could help climate change. It would make it rain during the summer a lot more, which could help the dry lands that hot temperatures are making. They're dry, they're arid, they could use the water from the trees. Now, the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has said that he wants to plant 30 million trees every year. I mean, not by himself. That that would probably take all year. He's going to get smart people to do it as well. Don't worry about that. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, have you got your tickets yet for the Fun Kids Science Weekly Live? You can come and see us at the end of August in London, putting on a big live podcast show. We'll search out some secrets from the universe. We'll have experiments. We might even have special guests as well. You can get your tickets for Fun Kids Science Weekly Live. It's in London at the Underbelly Festival right now at funkidslive.com. While you're on the website, it's one of the best places, by the way, that you can hear loads of podcasts that we make. You can get them on the free Fun Kids app too. They're on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows from. And Fun Kids, we're a children's radio station from the UK. Listen to us all over the country on your DAB digital radio, on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. I'm James Stewart, and in Saving Planet Earth, I'm going to be joined by some of the world's top scientists to introduce you to some of the weird and wonderful ideas being trialled to try and save our planet. Led, of course, by your questions. Hi, James. I know that climate change is affecting our oceans. Is there anything that's being done to look after it? And one of the solutions involves dolphin poo. (laughs) This is Saving Planet Earth. Available wherever you get your podcasts.